Now, this is Box to Box with Michael Edgley and Willem van Denderen. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. As Rob Gilbert takes a spell, you're with Willem van Denderen and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news, including the latest in Socceroos and Matilda's Central shortly. And as always, we'll be joined by our former ITN journo turned pundit, Derek Dyson. For the entirety of the A-League men's season, the balance of power in Sydney looked to have finally moved back west. That was until Saturday night, when the unfancied Sydney FC produced a second-half masterclass to sour the Wanderers' return to the finals and advance at their expense. It was once more with feeling for veteran Adam LaFondra, who'll join us after netting the winner against the odds. Following that, we'll head to Birmingham to deconstruct the fascinating season of Aston Villa, which promised so little under Steven Gerrard to start, and then so much under Unai Emery. The Athletics' Greg Evans is going to help us make sense of it all and predict where it will settle in three weeks' time. We'll round it out, as always, with Women's World Cup Corner. Edge is back in BKK and rearing to go there in the co-host seat, and he's particularly pumped about the result of the Asian Champions League final. But cool your jets for now, Michael. I want to throw to Derek first. Derek, welcome in. After the emotion and the, the pressure of the last month with Arsenal, must have been something of a, a nice, soothing, relieving watch to sit back and watch the Gunners win to at Newcastle, if not for the fact that it could have been 4-3. Yeah, well, um, uh, it was far from easy. I know that man of the match or men of the match must have been the goalkeepers for either side. Both Aaron Ramsey and Nick Pope were very busy and, and Arsenal did have to survive that opening blitz with the uh, Newcastle crowd uh, high uh, in spirits and in noise, and also a penalty decision, which I think, and you remember, guys, I am the anti-VAR man. VAR came to our aid in this game. Uh, clearly, it wasn't a handball, and it took them a little bit of time, and apparently Eddie Howe, after the game, said that the Newcastle uh, players were put off by that decision and took them a while to get over it, but uh, 2-0 win, great goal from Odegaard, great play from Martinelli for the second goal. Edge, and you stayed up and watched it in... Bangkok and we were saying just before we came on air that was probably Arsenal's standout performance and result of the season. Yeah absolutely you know Newcastle's uh, pretty hard to beat on their home deck these days and that was an important game for Arsenal just from the point of view of keeping pressure on Manchester City. I know Ian Wright uh, was pretty excited in the uh, in the studio and saying that's not all over for Arsenal. I think it is all over but um, it's uh, at least they put some pressure on City and make City go and win in their next match. Derek, I've got an issue with some uh, semantics for the headline writers all over the BBC and, and a couple of other players. Was Arsenal pegged back the deficit on Manchester City? That's only because City played first, is it not? The narrative has been as Arsenal has thrown the title away, even though I felt like they haven't exactly thrown it away. And now Arsenal are pegging it back. Look, of course, as Edge said, it's very much out of our hands. City have not got a slip up once, but twice uh, in the last four games. You know, goal difference would suggest that you know, even if they drew one and lost one, Arsenal would still be struggling in that equation. But um, yeah, I, I just think we've just got to keep plugging away. And City got four games left; three of them are away, including away against Brighton and away against Brentford. Those aren't easy matches, albeit Brentford have been on the beach for about a month. But Brighton will play both Arsenal and Manchester City in the next couple of games, and they could well decide the destination of the title. So. Uh, as an Arsenal fan, I'm just, I, I had that down as a loss, I'll be honest. And 
you know, to wake up to a victory and, and a good victory as well. I was very pleased and very proud of them. All right, we'll jump into the news, but I'm sure we'll circle back to Arsenal at some point. Let's start in Asia as a whole. Japan's Urabo Red Diamonds are Asian champions for the third time, having defeated Al-Halal 1-all and then 1-0 across the two-legged final. Played before 50,000 in Riyadh and 53,000 at Saitama. The Reds enjoyed a dose of luck for both goals, it must be said, through Shinzo Kuroki and Andre Carrillo's own goal. Urawa now sit equal second for most Asian titles with three, level with Ulsan Hyundai and Edge Al Halal, as we know, powerhouses of the region, remain first with four titles, although they have lost uh, now a further five finals. Uh, a classic case, really, for the, uh, for the Red Diamonds of get stuck in and ride your luck. Absolutely, and what a big club they are. Both super clubs in their own countries. But the seat of power in Asian football has returned to East Asia and to Japan. Uh, we'd seen West Asia dominate this competition uh, through the COVID period. So it is a, a big result for a big club. And very happy for Hiroki Sakai, who returned to his uh, home club after having eight years in Europe with Hanover and Marseille. And he got to hold the trophy alight. Um, and I know in Japan... It's a big deal. Obviously, in Australian sort of the news, football news is focused on what's happening in Europe as as the big leagues uh, culminate to the end of the season. Um, we sometimes lose sight of this competition, but uh, it is massive, this competition. And well done to Ura Red Diamonds. They return um, the, the, the crown, the jewel in the crown of Asian football comes back to Japan. Most certainly does. Adelaide United and Sydney FC have advanced to the A-League semi-finals, where they'll meet the Mariners and Melbourne City, respectively, across two legs. Craig Goodwin's double meant the Phoenix never threatened at Hindmarsh, while Adam LaFondra's winner wound back the clock as the Sky Blues overhauled their first half deficit to the Wanderers. Edge, the Wanderers and Mark Rudin, or Marco Rudin, are going to be shattered with that, really. A six-year absence, uh, the bulk of this, or pretty much the whole season in the top four, never quite managing to crack the top two, and then from there, up at half-time, and bounced out by their, their biggest rival. Can't wait to talk to Alfie LaFrondera. Uh, he was on the field and we'll ask him all about it. But uh, I was just interested, Andrew Edmain said it was his best derby win ever, uh, the come from behind 2-1 win by Sydney FC. And uh, it was fireworks and you just felt the emotion in the game got, uh, got a hold of Western Sydney at different times. And um, they are genuinely dislike each other now. And there was even a special guest appearance by Milos Nikovic in the Sydney FC change rooms after the game that has created uh, headlines and all sorts of intrigue as to what he was doing in there and what his relationship was with with Steve Corica. And, uh, yeah, so that the, the exit of Milos Nikovic to Western Sydney uh, from Sydney is uh, reverberating still uh, a year after it happened. Yeah, that's ugly. You don't want to see that. He was in the dressing room. He was shaking hands with a, a few players, obviously wishing them the best of uh, luck for the rest of the finals campaign. And then what looked like two bounces to, you know, people we, we sort of don't know as the outsiders, Eds. They weren't players. They looked like sort of, I don't know, they didn't even look like assistant coaches, just sort of club lackeys went and frog marched him out of the room. Um, yeah, rivalry is one thing, but yeah, obviously he wasn't, wasn't particularly welcome in there. And then uh, the other carry-on was pre-game. Sydney's the Cove uh, winning a lot of friends around uh, the, uh, the competition by sticking fat to their boycott. They're going to boycott the entirety of the final series uh, while the RBB turned out in force and probably lost a few friends around the, uh, the, active, uh, the active fan community in Australia. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll have a lot more to say about that in our stoppage time edition, which will drop on Wednesday. Uh, Simon Hill got uh, two curly questions on ABC Offsiders. I want to go into that into some detail in stoppage time. But the Cove um, sticking fat with solidarity around uh, 
the active supporters who feel very aggrieved about the APL's decision to host uh, the grand finals in Sydney. And they missed uh, the Cove. They might have been there in other parts of the stadium, some of them, or they were down at the pub watching a game. But uh, the ones that were down at the pub at least missed uh, uh, one of the best comebacks uh, in Sydney FC's uh, recent history, Willem. I suppose that speaks to the importance of a protest. You might just miss a a very famous night indeed. Speaking of famous nights, Napoli have broken a 33-year drought to win their third Serie A title. Uh, Their one-all draw at Udinese, seeing them over the line with four games in hand. They've won just four games in nine since the start of March, Derek, so it's been a bit of a stagger over the line, but they set themselves up with 15 wins from 17 prior to the World Cup and then an eight-match winning run post that. Uh, At 64, their manager, Luciano Spalletti, is the oldest man to win the Scudetto, uh, and he's... He's pretty famous and he's pretty well respected, but it's been a relatively meagre trophy cabinet to this point. He had the uh, the Russian title with Zenit, St. Petersburg in 2010, uh, and a couple of Italian cups as well. But this really does look like uh, a crowning glory, somewhat reminiscent maybe of Claudio Ranieri 2016. Yeah, albeit I would say that, you know, Napoli probably slightly more established in the upper hierarchy of uh, Italian football versus where Leicester City were. But sure. also, yep. you know, not 30 years without Scudetto, they pull together an exceptional squad of, you know, without spending an awful lot of money. It's not a heavily bankrolled club. And, of course, uh, Napoli at times have been their own worst enemy, being pulled down by various ruptures internally, politically, getting the fans offside at various times. So to get this all together and, and have the season that they're having is just uh, phenomenal. They're obviously upset and disappointed not to have gone further in the Champions League. They looks set to go deep in that and the watch on as uh, AC Milan and Inter Milan will duke it out in that semi-final that's coming up but uh, they've got some fantastic players I think the key for them now is going to be how many of them are they going to keep how many of them are going to lose uh, you'd think that Victor Osimhen is going to be uh, high on most um, Premier League upper levels uh, shopping lists and also other European giants too so I think with Napoli a great result but as Alex Bergson used to do, as soon as they'd won the league about five minutes later, he was already pulling his staff in and talking about next year. And I think that's what they're going to have to do. Yeah, it looks like the centre-back Kim Min-Jae will depart Manchester United in for him for around 50 to 60 million euros. And apparently they're uh, they're happy to let him, or not happy, but you know, resign to letting him go. And if Osimhen goes as well, uh, maybe then Kadovatskelia is the one that you desperately try to keep for at least uh, another season. Heading up to Scotland, Celtic have retained their league title with four games in hand, also four games in hand, uh, with next month's Scottish Cup final, all that stands between them and a fifth treble in seven years. Ange Postacoglu's side have lost one of their last 67 league matches and can eclipse the 107-point record of Brendan Rodgers' 2016-17 side should they win their remaining four. Derek, Celtic manages to win the treble. Jock Steen, Martin O'Neill, Neil Lennon, Brendan Rodgers uh, and now our man one game away. Again, classic thinking around the relative strength of the league and trying to weigh up the size of this achievement. But clearly, um, Celtic have just... Dis- knocked aside everything domestically so far. They've made uh, Rangers look very mediocre. They've got a very winnable final uh, to come uh, as well. So, look, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's a great it's a great achievement. I um, was listening to some Celtic fans on Talkback Radio, and they're very happy, but they're also concerned um, about what happens to Ange now. He's pretty much linked to every major job, particularly in the Premier League. And, 
he was asked after the game about his um, position on that, and he was a bit pretty coy, but we also saw him in tears, and I think he's said that it took him a while to find a club like this that, that just does everything for him, global fan base, um, obviously winning trophies, European stage, and the, the home passionate fans and the whole history and culture of the club. So I think he would need an exceptional offer from an exceptional club to go. I think he's got to focus on that uh, European Cup run next year and see if he can take Celtic a little deeper into that tournament because at the moment it's shooting fish in a barrel in Scotland. And, yeah, it won't be long before that just becomes a bit repetitive for him, I would have thought. Yeah, what do you reckon, Edge? The Champions League, again, is the carrot, but he's not a manager who's going to move mid-season. He's going to want to bed himself in somewhere uh, across a pre-season, bring the players in he wants and, and bed down his system over a period of time rather than jumping at uh, a club in turmoil mid-season if it is to be uh, in the Premier League. So where do you think he fits within the balance? Well, I think Derek's right. Um, I think he wants to stay at Celtic and do something in the Champions League that can do that club proud. They were only two points in the Champions League last edition, so he's got it all before him. Uh, but I, I firmly believe the right offer uh, will come along at some point and something will be so big that he won't be able to say no to and uh, his uh, career will move on. But at the moment, I get the feeling that he's probably going to stick it out for another year. They're going to be joined in the top flight next season. If he does stick around, he'll be up against uh, another one of our men, Gary Bowyer. Dundee FC are up. They had uh, the better of a wild 5-3 meeting with Queen's Park that, that had it all on the line. I won't knock over your stoppage time pins there, Derek, but yeah, make sure you tune in later in the week and we'll we'll go through that one blow by blow. We'll jump on to Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Edge, the Socceroos, about to play Argentina again in China? Yeah, in China, believe it or not. Vince Regari's broken a pretty big story. It was referred to in the New York Times in the last 48 hours that uh, the Australian Federation's been trying to cobble together a match with Argentina in Perth. Uh, the Argentinians, obviously, having won the FIFA World Cup, their price tag's pretty hefty. Um, I understand a deal couldn't be made there. And it appears that a third-party promoter um, is put together this match in China. And my uh, Vince Regari says in the... Article my that, sources, uh, Vince Regari, yeah. Yeah, my sources, he says, says that uh, if the Socceroos play anywhere in June, it'll be against uh, Argentina in China. So that's, uh, it's a bit of a worry that we can't get uh, some games because um, it's very important that uh, Arnold can you know, bring on some of these younger players and have a good look at some uh, emerging Socceroos before the World Cup qualifiers start. We'll, uh, we'll run through how a few of our players are going domestically. We've been told not to stress about Sam Kerr leaving the field on 32 minutes for Chelsea. She was apparently ill and then was cramping in the calf, so wasn't risked uh, and also wasn't required. Chelsea 7-0 over an evidence side that also featured Claire Wheeler. Fresh concern, though, for Steph Catley. Only lasted 15 minutes for Arsenal in her fourth game back from uh, from injury. So this season, from a Matilda's perspective, really can't end quickly enough. Full games for Courtney Nevin and Remy Seamson in that clash for Leicester, who did lose 1-0 to the Gunners. To the gents, Matt Ryan kept the fourth straight clean sheet for RZ Alkmaar in Holland, which means he takes good form into the Conference League semi against West Ham this week. His side remain fourth. Uh, Jackson Irvine and Connor Metcalf had another win, 3-0 over Darmstadt. So they are fourth, four points off that crucial third spot with three to play. And Edge, congratulations are in order for Denny Genro. Uh, we missed this one last week. Uh, we know he's broken into Toulouse's senior side, uh, but he won the, the Coup de France last week and then this week uh, welcomed Louis Genro into the world. So, uh, yeah, all the best to he and his partner uh, for the, yeah, well, the birth has, has happened. They've got a, a young boy in the world and, you know, as we know, big future ahead with the Socceroos. It's going to feature. 
Absolutely. And then great uh, uh, congratulations to, to the grandparents, Sophie and Mark John Rowe. Fantastic uh, that they've um, they've got a little grandchild and no doubt Sophie will be going backwards and forwards between Melbourne and uh, Toulouse to uh, see the little one. Petit garçon. Uh, we'll whip over to Japan. Kevin Muskett's defending champions Yokohama have won their last two. They sit second, two points off the pace. And in third is Mitch Langerak's Nagoya Grampus. Back to their stingy ways with a 1-0 win over Gamba Osaka on the weekend. Thank you for that there, gents. We will, uh, after the break, turn our attention to the Sydney Derby on Saturday night. Adam LaFondra, old dogs, old tricks. Uh, on the other side of the break. Now, I don't know anyone who doesn't love a cake or biscuits freshly baked from the oven. And with the cooler weather of autumn, there's no better time to start baking. So make sure this simple Hoyt spice mix uh, for your easy-to-go-to prep and exquisite flavouring each time. Start with Chinese five spice, a warm and rich blend with a hint of Hoyt's four-colour peppercorn mix, ginger and cloves, and the secret ingredient, Derek, Hoyt's famous vanilla sugar. Sounds absolutely delicious, Willem. Got it all when, are you gonna cook the, when are you going to cook this one? Uh, it might be the week after the uh, much-discussed, heavily promoted barbecue out of the Hillsville Sanctuary. It is perfect in pies, cakes, cookies, muffins, even sprinkled on top of lattes. That might be more my go, actually. I can, uh, I can whip you up a latte and uh, stick some of the uh, famous vanilla sugar on top of that. From there, you can enjoy and delight in the flavours of autumn. Refill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's at Coles, Woolworths, and all with independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. They may no longer occupy the highest reaches of the ladder as a matter of course, but there's life in Steve Corica's Sydney FC yet. Through to the A-League semis after a special second half to overhaul the Wanderers on Saturday night. Nobody embodies this revival like Adam LaFondra, whose fifth goal in five proved the decider. Adam, great pleasure to say welcome back to box to box Congrats. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. I wanted you to take us specifically to the goal. 80th minute. Corner comes in from Robert Mack. You've got Joe Lolly in front of you. You've got taller centre halves around you. Uh, but from the instant the ball comes off the boot, you know you're in the prime spot. So take us inside the uh, the specific sort of feeling and, uh, and awareness that comes from seeing that ball coming in to uh, to nodding it back in as well. Yeah, it was something. Um, you know, the assistant coach sort of pinpointed this sort of area before the game. Um, you know, could we could get potentially some joy from it if the delivery is you know obviously spot on. And I think if you look at the I think the first two corners of the game, Rodwell gets a couple of good headers on in a very similar area. And, and Nuenoff, who was on me at that point, he changed off me and went on to Rodwell. So obviously, later on in the game, I think Marcella's off by then. And obviously, they've swapped, I think, Beedling, is it, for, for Marcella. So, you know, I sort of drifted into that area in between where, where I'm meant to be really on the corners, what we sort of planned for. And, you know, Robbie's put in a, you know, pretty much perfect ball really there's enough pace on it for me not to really actually ask to you know head the ball I just have to direct it and use the pace of the ball and you know I've managed to time a jump perfect obviously I've got Joe in front of me who's come off the keeper I've got uh, Jack behind me who's you know half occupied Marcelo as well which is a big hole for me to, to sort of just hang and attack so it's sort of you know everything worked out perfectly uh, and you know the rest is history sort of thing. It just all seems to just, you know, collide in one moment and be a, you know, a perfect opportunity for me. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, great insight. If, if we can go back even further, um, a dominant second half 
to come from behind. You said yourself post-game that you don't mind where you are at the moment being ridden off as maybe a bit over the hill as a group. But what does it mean at halftime to look around the dressing room and see the manager, Wilkinson, Grant, Redmayne, Caceres, guys that you've been with and, and done it all before? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously after the adversity, we felt obviously very hard done by with the penalty. Uh, you know, I don't know what Wilco's meant to do there of deflection and, you know, he's falling backwards trying to get out of the way of it. You know, it, it's unclear where it hits and with the pictures they put up on, on the telly. And, and, you know, we could have sat there and started sulking, but we knew we had well enough, you know, shoots of life in that first half to show that we could really hurt them. And, you know, we had enough strength and character about ourselves that it wasn't going to end like that. We were going to go down swinging if we were going to go down. And, um, you know, I think, like you say, naming all them players in the dressing room, you know, we're like brothers pretty much because we've been together for a few years now. So, you know, we we had a real good, as you do, like in, in the dressing room with big characters like that, we all come together and, you know, we, we said what was, was needed to happen. Obviously, the coach outlined how we want to, uh, you know, improve our pressing and, and try and get a little bit more pressure initially on the, on the two centre-halves in build-up, which, you know, I felt like um, we couldn't do it up until half-time because they, they seem to find the sixes rotating out and, you know, we managed to do that and, you know, really pile on and even, you know, when they were clearing attack, it was coming straight to us and, you know, Bratsy was just orchestrating everything off the back of that and, you know, it was a, I wouldn't say it was a perfect second half, but I think it was a, a real dominating performance and performance that, you know, I think as a group we'd expect to see a lot more of um, throughout the season and, you know, I think um, obviously it's a testament to all the players that we turned up at that moment because, you know, you have to, like I say, you, other groups can, you know, sort of shrink away. But like I say, we've got big characters in the dressing room, been there, done that, seen it, got the T-shirt, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we knew we knew we had to force the issue. We knew they were obviously it's their first finals appearance in however long it is. And we knew we had to, you know, force the issue to them and, and see if they could hold out. And, you know, obviously once, once we got that one goal, I think, obviously, I said in the press afterwards, I think, you know, it was pretty evident there was only one team who was going to win that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, sort of the momentum just built up and which led to, obviously, you know, my goal as well, where um, we nicked it in the 80th. And just on your own form, before I hand over to uh, to Michael, six weeks ago, you were sitting out four or five-week spell with a hamstring injury and uh, the final certainly didn't look uh, a certainty for the side. Where were you at at that point mentally as an experienced pro at the uh, at the back end of your career who's who's seen it all? Uh, what were you thinking through that period? Uh, you know, I'll take you back even further if you want. So obviously, that derby we played at their place coming off after 45 minutes with another hamstring injury after I've just, you know, I've started hitting good form as well. I scored two against Mariners, a goal against victory. I was in a great place physically and, and, and mentally just prior to that. Then I get injured. Um, I come in the next day and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I might just have like a little nick on my grade, a little grade one, which, you know, the best case scenario is two, three weeks. And then the physio rang me up later on that day. And um, for me, it felt like the season ended. Like, I felt like, oh, there's just no way back. I was a seven-week injury. How am I going to keep myself fit? How am I going to, you know, be able to impact the boys when I come back? And, and obviously, the, obviously we've got to keep winning on the, off the back of that. And you know, obviously, seeing the results were, were a bit patchy when I was out. You know, I felt a little bit frustrated. felt like I sort of half let the team down as well, even though, obviously, you can't help injuries. But, you know, my mentality is I'm there to, to score the goal to help us win games. And, do the defensive side of it as well where 
you know, I sort of lead the press and help. I'm, I'd like to think I'm one of the leaders in the dressing room as well, which sets a good example. And, you know, I wasn't there to help that. Um, you know, for me, like I said, it, it felt like as soon as I got that news, I was out for seven, eight weeks, maybe longer, depending on, you know, how I recover, how I react to, to recovering was, was devastating for me. Um, and, you know, it sort of put me in a really bad space mentally. I had a few days off from, from training, had a bit of PRP, um, and my my hamstring seemed to respond really well to that, and you know, on the back on the road back to to recovery was, um, obviously it's, it's very frustrating. Like, there's no two ways about it. I hate being injured. I hate missing football. So, especially this point in my career where, you know, I've got a bit more tread on the tyres, and you know, there's not much more you know runway left to run up or to drive up. Um, you know, in that time missed is is precious time really, and um, I felt like. You know, this was sort of a culmination of, you know, is this the end of me at, at Sydney? And, you know, will I be able to even help the team when I come back? You know, when you know, I've been very fortunate that the medical staff at, at the club and the, the sports scientists at the club have, have really were, were fantastic with me. And, you know, got obviously I, I was in great shape and I come back and, you know, obviously made an impact straight away and being able to help the team straight away. I probably should have scored in the Western game as well, my first game back. So it's a, a testament to them really to, to helping me get back in a great physical condition. And, you know, for me, it was about just getting myself mentally ready and mentally prepared to play. And, um, you know, I think I've done that. I think I've come back, obviously, in, in the Western game and shown, you know, a little bit about my old self and got the goal at Adelaide. And, you know, the confidence grows from there. And, you know, as, as me scoring from there, the team has grown with confidence as well off the back of that. And, you know, creating more of the chances that I score from as well. So, you know, in the games that I've played in, they, they've created great chances which I score from. And um, they're the sort of chances that I, cr- I crave in, you know, in, in our team, especially with the players we've got as well. Alfie, well, there's no coincidence that in, you mentioned the match against Western United. You were 3-1 behind. And um, when uh, there's a, a lot of analysis around teams that were in the finals and your season was on the line that day and you got back to draw 3-3, and there's been no coincidence that you've been a, a key part of um, the wins for Sydney ever since you haven't lost a game since uh, that that comeback. Um, and you scored five goals in seven A-League's finals appearances. So I just wanted to ask you, um, now that you've been in Australia, have you embraced the significance of the A-League finals, what it means to um, the football um, structure here in Australia, the fans, the community, and um, are you in, are you embracing it? And um, the second part of that question is, uh, you go from what's a knockout elimination final into a two-leg home-and-away final against Melbourne City. So there's a lot to um, prepare for. There's a lot to get organised. But first of all, are you embracing the final structure here in Australia? Yeah, of course. Obviously, it was a very, very much of an adjustment period when I first came over. Obviously, in England, it's about winning, you know, winning the league, being the best team over the season. And... You know, you come out here, you win the Premiers, you lift the trophy and, you know, you throw it away pretty much and no one really cares. Um, so that was a tough adjustment, really. You know, you know, first season, you just adjusted to that and obviously became second that season and Perth won it and then we beat Perth on pens in um, in the GF and that was what everyone cared about. So, obviously for me, you know, you have to just embrace, you know, the finals. It's almost, you know, obviously it's a competition within itself at the end of the season where, you know... Um, it can happen really you know hopefully we can prove that as well we're, we're by, by no means a top seed um, you know ranking wise but 
we've definitely got the opportunity to cause an upset and you know do something that's not really been done before. So, um, you know, yeah, definitely. I, I like to think I'm embracing it. I think you know, this is, these are the moments to live for as a player. And I think you know, throughout my career, I've always sort of stood up in the big moments and and you know put my hand up to you know take charge or whatever to score the goal to to do whatever I've always sort of tried to put myself in that position and you know always wanted to be a hero and um, I think my finals record um, with the goals I've scored you know pretty much says what what I do in the finals so you know obviously I want to keep building on that as well because um, like I say it's, a, it's an amazing you know thing you know it brings you close with the fans and and obviously it's great it's great for you when you know when I do look back on my career that I, I look back and I don't think about the, the goals I scored in the league. I think about the goals that mean something that scored, you know, in the final series that got us to, to achieve something special. Certainly is. And this weekend, uh, you, you have the first league on Friday night at Allianz against Melbourne City. And then um, you go down to Melbourne for the last league. There's no away goal rule in this home and away format. So if aggregates equal at the end of the second league, you go to extra time and penalties. So it's just another little twist in this finals series that the fans uh, will get to experience and um, how do you do, how do you prepare for a, for a home and away league uh, contest like this it's a, a little different the contest is over a full game but uh, what are your thoughts about it yeah of course obviously it changed this season I think the the opposite the two leg thing I think they want to give the team you know a top seed you know that second leg so they've got that extra chance of you know not just going out after the bye week so you know I, I do like the idea of obviously the double leg um uh, I think it makes it very interesting for everyone involved. Um, you know, I think we prepare the same. You know, we're we're a good team. Obviously, we'll we'll do our due diligence on on Melbourne City because they're a fantastic team, the Premiers, and you know, have been a great team for the past two or three years now, and and it's sort of been you know to and froing from from Sydney and, and Melbourne City, who've been the best team in the A League over the, probably the five years I've been here. So it's a, it's going to be a great matchup. You know, two great attacking teams. Um, and you know we're going to have to be on song defensively if we're going to you know do something um, against them. So you know, like I say, uh, I'm really looking forward to these games because when we always play this, we always have great affairs. So like you say, going into a two-leg appearance like this, where you know it could be um, next time penalties in in Melbourne will be will be magnificent. And I think uh, you know, speaking for myself and I reckon for all the rest of the boys, I think we're really looking forward to it. And you know, I think like I alluded to. Prior the or after the the Wanderers game, you know everyone's written us off. We're underdogs, you know, for the first time really in my career, um, going into you know the majority of these games now. So you know it would be um, a nice you know sort of stick up the two fingers to everyone if we can actually do something to prove a few people wrong and you know um, you know give a little bit of stick back to the people who've um, you know given us a bit of flack this season really. And Adam, if we can just hold you for one more, just broadly, if I can ask, what does Sydney mean to you? You've played you've played more games and scored more goals for, for Sydney FC than for any other club. Um, your, your daughters have lived large portions of their lives there and uh, you ducked off to Mumbai but made it known when you went that you wanted to come back. So what does the club and the city uh, mean to you personally? Yeah, it's, you know, the, this was the sort of challenge I needed towards the, you know, the back end of my career. When I left, obviously, Bolton in England, I was looking for a new challenge and um, you know, Sydney has been nothing more, nothing short of absolutely fantastic. You know, as a, as a city, as a place, it's been amazing for my family and, and, and me as a player as well as a person. You know, my kids have grown up in the last five years here. It's been, 
such an incredible grounding for them and you know, such an amazing experience. Um, I, I couldn't recommend you know anything more than like, that's why obviously a lot of English players have come out here now. You know, when I speak to them, I say glowing references about you know anywhere in Australia really, but you know Sydney's obviously the, the place to be really um, for lifestyle wise and and like I say, the, the club as a whole, I've, I've got a really good bond with obviously the fans with you know what I've done over the, the past what, four and a bit years or four and a bit seasons, sorry, it was like five years. But um, yeah, I've got a, I like to say I've got a great affinity for them. I want them to do well, and you know the fans want me to do well as well, which. You know, works hand in hand with when you you know you, you spend a long time there and like I say I've had a great time here. Um, not saying it's over yet. This uh, you know, I could still stay um, next season, but we're we're still talking about that. So we'll just um, you know hopefully it does it does work out and you know then I can go on and break all the records we've got here and, and go from there. But you know first and foremost it's about being successful in the the finals period and and you know can't wait for the for the Melbourne game to come. Yeah, well, I think your last five weeks have uh, certainly helped your chances of staying on. Adam, thank you so much for your time and, and for being so generous with your insight. Uh, all the best for the rest of the campaign and, and for what does come beyond. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening, guys. Sydney FC's Adam LaFondra. Big two-legged semi-final coming up against Melbourne City over the next fortnight. Stick around on the other side. We're going to head to Birmingham. But, but, don't let the flu ruin your plans this year. Get in early and help protect yourself with the flu immunisation available wear edge. At Chemist Warehouse for them. The quadrivalent vaccine helps protect against four strains of influenza. Yep, all four. However, it can take several weeks to take full effect. Fortunate edge that you booked in nice and early. Make sure that you book your appointment now because it takes a community to build immunity. It's quick, convenient and affordable. Plus, you don't need to bring in a script. The prescription and administration are provided in-store by a qualified health professional. You'd expect nothing less. And this year, the quadrivalent strain vaccine is just $19.99 at Chemist Warehouse Edge. Just another bargain. Absolutely another bargain, and it's a great service when you go there. They look after you beautifully. Almost like a king, Willem. Almost like a king. You'll be coronated against uh, the uh, influenza by building immunity and booking your flu immunisation today at chemistwarehouse.com.au slash flu. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. It's been a topsy-turvy season for Aston Villa that's seen them both threatened by relegation and eyeing European competition at different stages, but in the end might just level out to a mid-table finish. Greg Evans is the athletics man on the Villa beat. It's always great to have a brummy voice on the show, so we welcome him back to help us make sense of it all. G'day, Greg. Good evening, guys. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for your time once again. Seems to have been, looking back, a season characterised by two distinct, if sort of contrary, runs. Uh, just three wins in 12 to start, saw the end of Stephen Gerrard. Uh, I think the last time we had you on, I was looking back, was 17th of October, and then by the 20th, he was gone. Uh, and then seven wins in nine up until a fortnight ago that saw the ambition level really rise uh, under Unai Emery. Is is that a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's crazy, really, to think the last time I was on where uh, where Villa were in the table and, and how disappointing um, the season was, was starting to become. Clearly, Villa needed to make a change, uh, in, you know, when Steven Gerrard was sacked, Villa were just three points off the bottom of the Premier League um, and they were only above the relegation zone on goal difference. So at that point, we were thinking Villa need to sign somebody 
as the new manager to keep them up in the division. It was incredible, really. Um, and the brief was, look, surviving the Premier League and let's see where we go next season. The fact that they were able to get Unai Emery in a world-class, you know, elite manager um, shows, how, shows how far this club has come. Um, and But look... The results, I think, you know, even the wildest dreams of uh, of some fans wouldn't have expected this. And then a couple of 1-0 losses to Man United and Wolves might have taken the air out of those sort of grand ambitions that maybe some in the stands were starting to dream of. Uh, and then a mixed bag to come, a pretty hapless Tottenham, uh, a resurgent Liverpool and a very honest Brighton uh, over the next three. So how do you see it playing out? I think the fact that Villa have got three games to to go and are in this great position. Look, if they win three, if they win three out of three, then they finish in the top seven. Um, if they beat Tottenham, uh, they go over them. And I just go back to when Gerard was sacked. Tottenham are fourteen points ahead of Villa uh, in third position, and you know you'd have been laughed out of court if you'd have said that Villa is going to catch them. So the fact that they can still beat them on Saturday. And, and go ahead of them, I think is a huge plus point for this season. Um, and it just shows that the players that Villa had were good enough. They just needed to be coached better. Yeah, one of the things that's maybe missing from Villa in the last couple of games has been goals. Uh, obviously, Holly Watkins, amongst others, has been a phenomenon uh, for Villa this season. But uh, what do you think's happened on the goal front? And is there anything that they can do to arrest that trend? I think the issue, Derek, is... Um, Villa seem to struggle when Ollie Watkins does not score. Now, they haven't got another senior striker to turn to, um, so that's a bit of an issue. But what we've got to remember is up until the last two games, Villa had scored in every single game under Unai Emery. So goals in general have not been a problem. They just have you know dried up, so to say, in the last couple of games. But they've, they've had plenty of chances in each of those games, and, and, and they were both away games at, at Manchester United. Um, and Wolves, a local derby. So two tough games. And I just think in general, that run of goal, of scoring in every single game for what was a, a lower ranking Premier League team, but he's now probably a middling to pushing for Europe team, um, was going to dry up at some point. They're not going to score in every game because they're not Man City or Arsenal. So um, it just let's just see how the next few games go. The one thing I would say is that they do need to get another striker this summer because, um, you know, you just... You can't rely on one striker for the whole season, and that's what Villa have done with with Ollie Watkins. Yeah, there's um, been some sort of transfer gossip chatter about a few different attacking options for Villa. I read links with uh, Ferran Torres, Vlajevic at Juventus. What player he is? Uh, Tammy Abraham, mm-hmm. Ivan Tony, even James Madison, who's not a striker but obviously is a, a player with a lot of forward forward intent. To, any of those players excite you? And as far as as you know, is that is it is it that what it is? Just gossip, or is there anything solid about the interest in any of those players? Well, look, there's a lot of interest in a lot of players. Villa are very ambitious in who they want to bring in. I think the issue they're going to have is that while while, while Emery is very ambitious and wants to bring in these high-profile players, um, are some of these players that are potentially going to be qualifying for the Champions League next season? Will they want to come to Aston Villa, who might finish in eighth? This season and not have any European football next year. So, um, you know what we what we know between us all as players, uh, um, as people working in industry about players is that they want to be paid well, but they want to be successful. So Villa can pay them well, but can they be successful? That's the issue they might have. Um, Tammy Abraham, a player that obviously Villa know well because they had him on loan in the 2018-19 season where he scored 25 goals to help Villa get back into the Premier League. Um, he's a player that, that has been long admired at the club, so certainly one that will be on 
the um, the list of strikers that will be under consideration. Um, some of the others' names that you've that you mentioned previously, uh, I think it's going to be a bit difficult bringing them out of Juventus, for example, if if they do qualify for the Champions League this year, um, and some serious money will need to be spent as well. So, the um, the transfer gossip section has gone into overload already over these last couple of weeks, uh, particularly as Villa are bringing in a new sporting director from Barcelona, Matteo Alemene. Um, so I think what, we'll, what we will be expecting is quite a few players coming in from La Liga, purely because the, the makeup of Villa's management team is now predominantly Spanish. Um, and, uh, and 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 their sort of best net best scouting network is in Spain, so that's something we'll be looking forward to seeing how that how that unfolds. In terms of players in the squad at the moment, uh, notice that EA Sports put out their Premier League uh, team of the week this week. That's been doing the rounds in plenty of WhatsApp groups and plenty of debate there. And no Villa players there. It's a very kind of very top of the table, big club skewed um, one. If you were to make a case for any Villa player to, to be in that team of the season. And I suppose, de facto, Villa player of the season. Who Who is that player? Who would you put in there? It's difficult because the, there has been quite a few success stories at Villa. And, and there's an article that I'm currently writing up for The Athletic you know, this week. And it's, for the first time in a long time, we're struggling to decide who is the player of the year. So you've got Emmy Martinez, who makes a world-class save in almost every single game and he's on the back of a World Cup winning year. Um, Tyrone Mings and Ezri Konza have formed one of the meanest defences in the Premier League, certainly under Unai Emery. Uh, John McGinn is back in excellent form. Ollie Watkins has scored 11 goals in 14 games um, and I think has only become the, th- the third player to score over 10 goals in each of the last three seasons alongside um, Harry Kane and, and Mo Salah in the Premier League. So there are plenty of success stories, but it's hard to say if any of those would specifically fit into the team of the year across the Premier League because there's been so many success stories across the other teams. Um, you know, I suppose if I could pick one, it'd probably be Emmy Martinez. Absolutely. Well, he's had a fine a fine season, particularly with his World Cup winning exploits. And I think Willem might have a question uh, about him towards the end of this uh, this discussion. But... Looking at some of the some of the younger players, I mean, you were talking about can Villa attract the top top players. One thing that they have been very good at is promoting from within, and I suppose Jacob Ramsey is the classic example of someone who's who's performing at a very high standard for for Villa this season. Can you tell us about his rise, particularly for maybe listeners of the show that are not as familiar with him, and just about the overall Villa production line of, of local talent there in Birmingham. Yeah, I think what's great about the I think what's great about Villa is that they can still use Jack Grealish as an example for so many young players coming through. Obviously, Grealish started at the club when he was six years old, moved on, um, you know, became the captain of the club, helped the club back from the Championship into the Premier League, and was then sold on for a hundred million pound, a record British fee. Um, so players who are coming through at Villa know that there is a pathway, know that. If they perform well for Villa, they can move on to even better things in the future, just like Grealish did. Jacob Ramsey is the the poster boy now for youth development at Villa. Um, there's actually three Ramseys. I'm not sure if you're, you're all aware, but there's there's three brothers who who play for Aston Villa. Uh, Jacob being the oldest, Aaron, who is currently on loan at Middlesbrough, and there's a, an even younger one, Cole, who's 16, I think now. 
um, in the under 16. So, I mean, that would just be incredible if ever two, let alone three of them, played in the, in the same Villa team. Um, but there's been a real push since Nassif Sawiri and Wes Edens, the, the co-owners, took over in 2018 um, to help promote youth through the club. There's been a real significant investment behind the scenes to help bring some of the best young 13, 14, 15 year olds into the club um, and then hopefully promote them in in, in later years. Carney Chukwemeka, you know, he's another guy that often gets overlooked. He was somebody who Villa had at the club since he was eight, nine years old uh, and then moved on to Chelsea for £20 million. But there are also other players like Aaron Ramsey, who is performing really well for Middlesbrough, uh, Jaden Philogene Bidace out at Cardiff City on loan, uh, and Timmy Rabunam. Uh, and also Finazas, who's, who's just won, helped Plymouth Argyle win League One uh, and, and will be a championship player next season if, if he moves back out on loan. So, but we've got five or six players out in the championship um, who are significantly increasing in value. So if they do decide to move them on, they will raise a lot of funds to help um to help their 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 future current uh, their future recruitment drive but also some of those players might be used in the squad especially if they're getting to Europe because they're going to be needing more players so yeah there's lots of positive stories coming out from from the youth development side of the club and Greg, if I can just circle back to Unai Emery to close, for those who, who don't watch Villa every week as, as closely as you do, for those who maybe see only a game here or there, can you can you nail down one fundamental thing that he's he's brought to the club, one fundamental part of his management that has seen such a such a significant swing from, yeah, as I said last time we had you on, the dying days of the Gerard reign to a side, you know, touching European competition? I think it's just the preparation, you know, the meticulous planning, the the detail, the the, the level of in, the intense level the, of preparation that, that goes into every game. Um, you know, I've spoke to so many players within the squad, and they say that the uh, the video sessions are extremely long. They, they, they debrief every single game in full, which you know, for players who need short bite size um, video cuts, it, it is quite hard to take in. But the buy in from the players has been excellent because the results are followed and, and and I think that's just the key. It's the preparation, you know, um, not leaving a single stone unturned um, and, and clearly Villa have a different game plan for every opposition and it seems to be working. And just to close, Derek signposted it, so I'll go with it. What sort of tremor went through the club when Emiliano Martinez made such a sort of ostentation show of buying the £20,000 Belgian Malinois guard dog post-World Cup to protect his house? And just the general sort of carry on and the way he conducted himself uh, post World Cup. I mean, as Australians, we saw him close up. He uh, he, he kept us from from advancing, and uh, he was magnificent. But then, yeah, very much was keen to have the spotlight on him for, for quite some time. I think that's just Martinez as a guy. You know, somebody who's been brought up in in in, in almost poverty. You know, somebody had nothing. He he moved to um, he moved to Arsenal as a seventeen year old, and he used the signing on for. To, to help um, pay for his mum and dad to, to, to be more comfortable in their life because you know they struggled to put food on the table when they when they were younger. Um, he's just somebody who's enjoying his football, he's enjoying his life, he's enjoying his, his promotion um, in the game as, as the Argentina number one, as the Villa number one. Um, and you know he's always backed himself. so he's just he's a very sort of he's a very brash in your face uh, character, but he's just enjoying himself. Outstanding, Greg. Thank you so much. As we say, it has been a, a topsy-turvy season, but with three games to go, it looks like it is going to be one that is uh, significantly in the green by uh, by the time the final ball is kicked. So thank you once again for your time. 
You're welcome. Thank you. The Athletics' Greg Evans there. Make sure you jump on the website and check out his copy on all things Aston Villa. Stick around on the other side of this. We'll close out with a bit of Women's World Cup Corner. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Time for a bit of Women's World Cup Corner to close out the show. Edge is back on board with us. And I want to start this week with our old friend Gianni Infantino, the bastion of morality. He's up to his old tricks again. He continues to rage against what he considers the lowball offers that FIFA are receiving for the broadcast rights for the Women's World Cup. We know we're set here. We've got Optus for every game. We've got Channel 7 for choice games. Uh, By the way, Optus this week announcing that their coverage is going to be fronted by Neve Owens, Kelly Summers, and former Matilda and friend of the show, Amy Duggan. Uh, But back to Gianni. He's this week broached the idea of a blackout, if you don't mind, in the UK, Spain, France, Germany, and Italy, if the, quote, slap in the face offers to all women don't improve. Uh, Derek, it's important to note that this is the first time the rights have been unbundled from the men's rights. Infantino's put some pretty sort of ugly numbers out there. He said that the men, uh, sorry, the women are, you know, commanding between one and 10 million. Uh, I assume that would be euro, uh, but the men's rights command between 100 and 200 million. Uh, so yeah, that looks, you know, like a pretty grotesque sort of disparity but former Matilda Moya Dodd who is also uh, ex-FIFA and ex-AFC on the executive uh, said FIFA's historically overvalued the men's and undervalued the women's portions of the two bundles Uh, so it isn't surprising that the broadcasters then don't want to pay uh, the big sums twice she said rather than scold the broadcasters I'd like to see FIFA help shift these misconceptions by reviewing all of its bundled deals broadcast sponsorship the lot and attributing a fair proportion uh, to the women's game. What do you make of it? Yeah, I'm glad you've come to our box to boxes Gianni Infantino correspondent in myself. I always seem to get these ones as the uh, bleeding heart of the uh, of the box to box team. Um, but yeah, obviously it's not a surprise from Gianni. I think he said in Qatar that he was a woman uh, amongst <laughs> other things. So clearly has lots of empathy uh, there. Um, yeah, and I think I think Moira has got a point. Um, Rule, rule number one in business, if you, you know, don't give something away and then expect someone to pay for, for it later. The second you give something away for free, people will, n- will not pay for it after that. So I feel like it was, you know, not just Infantino, but Blatter and others before them, that it was their, their problem that they bundled these rights in in the first place. Um, and obviously, I, I, you know, I'm not surprised uh, in a way that the way it's, uh, the way it's come out as well. Um, look, I, I, I fully expect that some sort of deal will be done. And obviously, he's, you know, he is a wily old fox, is Gianni. And by kind of putting it on the back pages, you know, he's expecting those offers from the BBC, ITV to fly in. You know, in the UK case, we've got an excellent uh, England team. I think it would be a huge aberration if uh, people can't watch it. So I'm sure old auntie BBC will, will, will come to the table. But I just think it's the... Uh, the level of vitriol that that rubs rubbed me up the wrong way when I when I saw this, and of course um, Gianni Infantino, the is a champion of women, of course, particularly when he was trying to get visit Saudi involved in the World Cup over here. So uh, well done, Gianni. Double standards, are, uh, just your bag as always. What do you reckon, Edge, to uh, try and generate more revenue by sliding the the value scales and then saying that he will not back down as it's the moral obligation to women that FIFA hold is a new one. He's very crafty, as Derek points out. 
Well, when they unbundled these rights, they uh, talked about uh, maximising the opportunity because there were some niche broadcasters that might have been interested in uh, what was going on. I think uh, one of the big issues here, I don't necessarily agree with Moya Dodd's article. I, I do think that the main issue with the value of the rights at the moment is that most of the games in Europe are going to be between 3 and 7am in the morning, which doesn't create a peak viewing audience for uh, these broadcasters to sell advertisers and uh, recoup their money. So I think there is a, a bit of a power tussle on at the moment. But if I was a broadcaster, I'd be a little bit wary about uh, not doing what FIFA wants because it might come home to roost when they open up the uh, broadcast rights opportunities for USA, Mexico and Canada, which the broadcasters will want because of the obvious, uh, the obvious windfall that it uh, brings them each four years. Yeah. Secretary General at FIFA, Fatma Samura, has played good cop this week off the back of Gianni's uh, comments. She said discussions have been positive. We're just asking for a little revision uh, and that we still have 80 days to get a deal done. Ed, you've got a little bit more on what Fatma's been up to this week? Well, she's been channeling her predecessor, Jerome Volker. She's been doing the whistle-stop tour of all the governments and she's been dropping the invoices off at premiers all over Australia. Um, but she did note, uh, she said that... Um, uh, she put the carrot out there and she said that if the Women's World Cup goes well and it's uh, to the expectations of FIFA that it might be a good advertisement for Australia-New Zealand bid for the 2030 or 2034 FIFA Men's World Cup. So she put it out there. Um, and she also made mention that um, she thought that uh, judging by the reaction of Australia's border uh, officers to her in her arrival, that the country was ready to welcome the world to Australia. Uh, Derek, do you think she's watched the... TV program Border Security, where um, representatives of our fine um, customs uh, department uh, are not very friendly. Yeah, she 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 may well have done, and that is um, classic quintessential television. Edge, I'm sure uh, all our listeners will be familiar with it. And uh, um, yeah, yeah, as as you said, uh, she, she's obviously been doing her homework on that one. She she probably got the uh, the border security bloke in Sydney, the only guy who's nice. But I somehow think they might have known she was coming with them. Uh, may very well have been the case, Edge. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, I hope you don't melt over there in uh, Thailand. You said you're about to dip in the pool after this one. So uh, good to know you are back in position uh, over there in BKK. Good to have you back on the show. Yes, it's been a good show. Really great to interview with Elfie LaFronda. I really enjoyed that and so much news to talk about and um, looking forward to stoppage time in a couple of days' time. And Eric, in contrast, don't drown before we next come to you uh, for stoppage time, my friend. Stay nice and dry. Yeah, absolutely. I'm worried about drifting away. I won't be going down any uh, swimming pools anytime soon. Have you built the ark yet, Derek? Sorry, that. Sorry, mate. I said, have you built the ark? Built the ark. Well, I've got the animals just around the corner, haven't I? So I could uh, get them all two by two. But they'll only be domestic corner, of course. But I give it a go. Make sure you do please subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Box to Box Offside, which is apparently going to be making a comeback. Just getting nice and toasty and reheated in the oven. It'll be to you uh, shortly wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and join us on Wednesday afternoon when we uh, drop our stoppage time and we go from one end of the pitch to the other. Once again in the world game.